where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. This is going to sound like a quiz, but it's not intended as one. Does anybody remember the first thing that Jesus said after his time in the wilderness? He spent 40 days where his heart and his mind were certainly tested. And he, oh, I saw someone reaching for the book. Well, it's a good way to find an answer. (laughs) I'm not sure what would come up if you Googled it. What he said was, the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the first thing he said. There was another word that was before that phrase. It was repent, which means to change your thinking. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I would imagine 40 days in the desert would do that. So would a week or two in Puerto Rico. But did he realize how hard this can be to change your thinking? It's really hard to do. Jesus' style of teaching, though, spoke to what contemporary social scientists refer to as motivated reasoning, which is deciding what evidence or information to accept based on the conclusion one prefers. It has nothing to do with education level. It has everything to do with a conclusion you prefer based on your group that you associate with most. So the simplest way to say this is that humans display an instinctive bias in favor of one's in-group. It's instinctive. So... In light of that, it really does seem as though Jesus understood the challenges and thinking he was up against. And the teachings we are left with engaged the disciples' imagination and it indicted their biases. And they do the same for us. They're intended to engage our imagination, which has an expansive effect, and to indict, to help us to see where our biases lie and to move beyond that. So let's turn now to our scripture lesson. Uh, And some of this, if you've been here each week, is a little bit of a recap. Please join us in the responsive scripture reading that is printed in your bulletin. God's God's dimension dimension is is here here and coming. A mustard seed that someone took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's the greatest of shrubs, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. God's God's world world is here and and coming. coming. Yeast that a person took and mixed in with three measures of flour until it was all leavened. God's God's zone is here here and coming. A merchant in search of fine pearls on finding one of great value sells all of their possessions and buys the pearl. God's neighborhood is here and coming. Let all who have ears hear. Little did we know that this would be a really good time to look closely at the kingdom of heaven parables. All of these parables 
And many of the teachings of Jesus are an indictment of the social, political, and religious, which was all completely connected practices of his time. Jesus was not in support of business as usual or governance as usual, and he presented another way. And he called this, in some places, God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven. Other words for kingdom are God's dimension, God's world, God's zone, God's neighborhood, as you heard in this reading, and there are others. But I loved the notion of God's neighborhood. I thought that was really cool. Maybe it was because Robert played, where'd he go? Robert played It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood a few weeks ago when we dedicated the, um, the welcome bags. All three of the parables that we just heard are near and a part of everyday life. The bushweed in the field, bread making, and a merchant. Easily imagined in a neighborhood. So let's take a moment to consider God's neighborhood. On these communion Sundays, we try to do an intergenerational activity. And this is a moment for you to turn to the folks beside you or in front or behind, or just keep to yourself, if that's your preference, and consider the design of God's neighborhood. What would that look like? What would be the gathering places? Where would Jesus hang out? And here's a question that I've been having a lot of fun with. What would be the street names? So take one of those elements or all of those elements, just a few minutes to yourselves. Come up with some street names or a gathering place or a design. Just think about it or turn. Maybe write it down. Oh, I'm hearing some some fun ones. Blessed Boulevard, Miracle Way. Any others? The Good Place. The Good Place. Oh, we just started watching that, actually. That'll be another sermon. Main Street, did you say? Faith Street. Ah. Hallelujah Way. The Bakery on Love Street. That sounds good to me. Inspiration. What was that? Fishes and Loaves Grocery, yeah. Follow the what? Follow the light rail. (laughs) See how fun this is? Yeah, this is fun. I like that. It's worth considering what kind of neighborhood we are building, isn't it? Because here in this, in this story, we have a socially suspect profession. That's the merchant. I mean, you know, you might think of a shop owner or something as a nice person, but, yeah, that's not typically a highly regarded profession in biblical times. It reminds me of, and I'm not trying to put down this show, but it's just like American Pickers on the History Channel. You know, they go through America and they are searching barns and basements and back rooms and they buy these things at a low price and sell them at a high price and very seldom, very seldom do they buy something that's not worth more than what they pay for it. So the surprise here, the surprise in this parable, the one about the merchant, is that the thinking challenge presented is really just in the story itself. It makes no sense. It honestly makes no sense. Whether you translate it as a merchant or you translate it as a jeweler, 
Essentially, the merchant puts themselves out of business. They go searching for many pearls. They find one, and they sell everything they own, all their inventory, everything they have for this one thing. It doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? They essentially put themselves out of business for this one ultimate purchase. Nothing left to buy or sell. And a pearl, mind you, has no practical value. You can't eat it. You can't sleep on it. You can't drive it. And I happen to live with a young man now who knows a lot about jewelry and pearls. And he shared with me that some things that you may or may not know about pearls. First of all, they're a physical object of beauty in the eyes of the beholder that only exists because of an irritant. That one grain of sand that's either developed naturally, which is quite uncommon, or if it's farmed or inserted on purpose, which is called a cultured pearl. Interesting, isn't it? Cultured, on purpose irritant to grow something that may or not be of value. Hmm. And this cultivation of the pearl is a slow process of surrounding the irritant with nacre. The irritant, something that does not belong. The oyster produces this nacre, which is the exact same material as the shell. So it's now a double shell. You know how the expression of um, hiding in your own shell, protecting yourself? Well, that didn't work. Something got in. And so now there's this whole other layer of protection. The older the oyster, the better the pearl. And a pearl can produce multiple oysters, especially in the farming, in the cultivating process. You can extract a pearl, put in another irritant, and it'll just keep pumping out pearls without, apparently without any harm. But I don't know how you measure harm to an oyster. So I'm going to let that piece go. And just say that it takes between one and three years to produce a pearl of enough size that it could be of value to a merchant. So this physical object that this merchant sold everything for began with something that didn't belong, something not quite right, something out of place. I wonder and wondered all week, what is this pearl a symbol of? Could it be a symbol of what really matters? And if it is, then what really matters? And because of the conversations that I've had this week, I wondered about this whole God's neighborhood piece of what really matters is acknowledging the harm where it exists or acknowledging harm where it exists. The wisdom to see beneath the surface. And to acknowledge, as I said to one person who came in today, I said, you know, saw you last week, saw you this week. I wonder how many people know that your father's memorial service was in the days in between. And so this seeing beneath the surface There's also another element to a pearl. You can't deny that there was an irritant. You can't deny 
that something got in that didn't belong because you have physical proof. So it shuts down the denial aspect of it. And so what are the things that we can't deny that come at a great price? This complete change for the merchant. Merchant one day, not the next, after this purchase, came at a great price. The price of everything that merchant had. And consider all that's not offered in the story. I mean, who did the merchant buy the pearl from? Where did that person get it? This person goes from suspect salesperson to someone who now has just one thing that doesn't translate into day-to-day necessities. This person has now become a neighbor in need. That's a big shift. Here's a true story of God's neighborhood up close. There's a small town where the sidewalks have these items that are called witness stones. And they're brass plaques that have the names and whatever information they can fit on this plaque of people who in that town had been enslaved. And this is a cooperative project between the schools where the middle school students do the research to find out as much as they can about these people who were enslaved. And the churches who put up funds and the municipalities that agree on places where they can be located based on places of import of the enslaved person. So this is a way of bringing to light a community's history and preserving the dignity of a person who lived in horrific conditions. So with the name and with the story God's neighborhood has these plaques on the street that are an effort to make amends. And these are, you know, intended to be permanent, whatever that means in the span of life, right? These witness stones were modeled after something else called a stumbling block, and I like that name even better. Because parables are like stumbling blocks. They're supposed to stub our toe a little bit and get us to look down. Now, apologies to the people who have recently fallen. Um, I know there are a few of you here, and, um, and it's a painful process. So we're just talking metaphorically here. But the stumbling blocks exist in Europe, and they have spread all throughout Europe, and it's the same principle, except it's for Jewish people who were exterminated. And these stumbling blocks are placed in the ground at places of import, the places where that person last lived or uh, where they worked or perhaps where they prayed. God's neighborhood. And whether it's the enslaved or the environment, economic disparity, equal rights, housing, disaster relief, LGBTQ plus or something else. Expanded community beyond the group is what God's neighborhood requires. Period.
instead of defending or denying, we must acknowledge harm where harm has happened. We must take responsibility. Not that we were perpetrators necessarily, but we must take responsibility for generations that have gone before us. And for some, this is communal. Perhaps some of these things are touching you personally. And maybe it's time now to acknowledge and take responsibility and make amends where possible. In the restorative justice practice, they used to have, uh, as part of that process, um, a very strong interest in reconciliation. That language has changed from reconciliation sort of as a goal or a part of the process to clarity sessions. Because you can't force reconciliation. But clarity sessions allow for both parties to either be in the same room or a note passed from one to another to sort of say, to say for sure I'm sorry, but here's what was happening. And here's where I was coming from. And then the other person has an opportunity to respond. Just to clarify, let me be clear. I am super sorry. I didn't know what I was doing, but, but I did know that I was causing harm. This is what these parables call us to. This is what it means to live in God's neighborhood. To be visible participants or residents in a different kind of world. You know, so I think some of the street names are going to be forgiveness, which is not the first thing that comes to mind. Always. Especially if you're the person with the irritant. So we need to stop and pause. We need to look beneath the surface and beneath the superficial. To our piece of the hunger and the dream we share with all of creation. Social critique is expected, but it's not the end. The end is within each of us and the neighborhoods we are creating. And in those places where the witness stones or the stumbling blocks or places like Micah homes or trips to Puerto Rico to help or perhaps even time in the desert, it's not unusual for Jesus to show up in those places where you can catch a glimpse of the teacher, him or herself. Because there's also something deep within us that isn't going to rest until it happens. It may feel like an irritant, but it's really an invitation to life. It may seem like it's producing something of no value, but it is the only thing of value. Because in the end, what's going to matter is our relations one to another. The greatest thing that was lost in the translation of Scripture over time is the centrality of community. We are not alone in any of our challenges of life.
we can try to push people out or deny the help that's being offered, but that doesn't make it any less true. And so today we celebrate our community as we celebrate every week, really. And it's the community that remembers who we are and what we are about as we head to the table. God's neighborhood is near, and the choice to see it is ours. And as always, what we choose will determine how we live. And so, friends, as you leave this place, choose well. And it may help you to remember as you step into whatever courage you need to make that choice that when Jesus gathered his friends together and he prepared to say goodbye to them and they were sure that they were facing the end, he said to them, Peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. I do not give as the world gives. Therefore, be not afraid. Friends, go in peace. Amen. Mm -hmm.